Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Time to talk a little bit about carbon tax and some of the issues where perhaps the messaging was off and it just didn't get to the people who will be paying the tax, you, me, uh, anybody else, basically. It just didn't sell perhaps the way government wanted it to. And joining me on the line is Philip Cross. And Philip Cross is a uh, McDonald Laurier Institute Monk Senior Fellow. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a new paper that uh, is out that you've put out, and that is the title of it: "The Case for a Carbon Tax: What Went Wrong." Uh, let's go through some of the issues that you've outlined in this. What do you think? What is perhaps the number one thing that has gone wrong when it comes to the carbon tax? I think people vastly underestimated how unpopular consumption taxes generally are in North America and how tough a case this was going to be. I think a lot of people just thought, well, if we just, you know, assure people that this is more efficient, that this is good for them, that they'll take their medicine without questioning it. And what they forgot completely was the heavy resistance in North America, especially Canada, Consumption taxes. Out in B.C., for example, I mean, I'm sure you recall, just recently as 2011, B.C. had adopted the GST, uh, accepted a lot of money from the federal government for doing so, put it up to a referendum to the uh, people, and the people rejected it. And people just never took the lesson from the GST how, of how unpopular it was and said, well, if we had trouble selling the GST, we're probably going to have more of a problem with the carbon tax. And uh, instead, they they put out a very weak case for it, and uh, it just never really caught on with the population. Uh, the The second big problem was, at a minimum, the only chance you had to make this tax sell was to make it revenue neutral. That is, that for every dollar you raised through the carbon tax, you would lower income taxes. And that's the way it started out in B.C., uh, but even BC, that's backed off from the revenue neutrality, and it never had a chance in, in uh, jurisdictions like Ontario, which basically were flat broke and left at the opportunity to turn this into a tax grab, uh, and conservative politicians just jumped all over that. So uh, this had messaging problems right from the beginning, and it's just gotten worse and worse. Well, and even with the idea of it being revenue neutral, uh, there were certainly uh, many who debunked that, saying that the the number of taxes that were being used to to offset it or in the equation to make it appear to be revenue neutral, that it never really was. Um, Well, I think uh, at the very beginning in 2008 in B.C., Uh, I think you could make the argument that there were offsetting income taxes, even corporate income taxes were lowered. Um, Now, you could argue that, you know, meanwhile, there was spending going on in green energy programs that were probably being subsidized by this. I mean, that, you know, government finance is always because a big shell game at some point. You know, there's so much money moving around, you can do a lot with it. Uh, I think the real argument, though, is that the federal government, when the federal government got involved in this in 2015, when they made that agreement with the provinces, they made the mistake of turning over the implementation of the tax to the provinces. If the federal government had come in with all the money that they have, they might have been able to make it revenue neutral. But once they turned it over to provinces, and especially provinces like Ontario, like Newfoundland, like New Brunswick, who are really struggling with their finances, it was easily predictable that there was going to be no revenue neutrality, that the premiers would not be able to resist a tax grab. 
And, uh, and that, as I say, that really opened the door for conservative politicians to say, uh, governments are just using this as a tax grab. This is going to make you worse off. And it's very hard to counteract that argument because, well, it's true. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what about the, the idea of if it, that it's not having the desired effect and that if we see reports that show emissions are actually up or it's not actually cutting back on emissions, do people uh, kind of take that and think, well, why do we even have this then if it's not getting us the desired effect? Exactly. And that you know, very much goes back to BC's experience, that there was a lot of research early on um, that when BC brought in the carbon tax in 2008, there seemed to be a, an unusually large response from emissions going down. And that raised the hope that, well, just a small tax might do the job and get us to our emissions reduction goals. It turns out, however, you know, once you really started to uh, collect more data, it turns out a lot of that drop in 2008 was due to the recession and a little bit to the cross-border shopping and not to a, a, an unusual response to the tax. And now as researchers have uh, looked into it more and more, they're finding that instead of a $50 tax, as the government has currently proposed, you're going to really achieve environmental goals. You're going to need a tax of $200, $250. And at that point, politicians of all stripes just throw out their hands and say, no, we're not going down that road, which raises the question then, well, what is the goal of all this? If you admit that you're, it's just going to be a token tax that's not going to substantially alter behavior, why bother? Uh, it seems to be uh, it's more like a papal indulgence that, you know, we'll, we'll pay a little bit of a tax, we'll feel good about ourselves, we won't really change anything, we won't make the tax system more efficient, we won't achieve our environmental goals, but we'll feel good about ourselves. And I don't think that's very satisfying to anybody. I don't think it's satisfying to environmentalists. I don't think it's satisfying to economists. And so you even have a lot of the people who you would think would be disposed to support this tax are now starting to question, why bother? What's the point? And is that where the messaging comes in? Because you also talk about messaging and the problems with that when it comes to the tax. Uh, Very much so. I mean, as to say, the, the proponents of this tax... Uh, would uh, I mean a kind word would would be to say uh, intellectually lazy? Um, you know they really thought that this would be an easy sell, and uh, a, a better word for it though would be condescending. They really thought that just by uh, by stating that this tax was m- more efficient, uh, they really didn't go back and they didn't go back and look at why did we not convince Canadians about the uh, usefulness of the GST and learn from that. Uh, and they didn't learn the lessons as, you know, this case for the carbon tax has unwound over gradually and become worse and worse over a period of several years. And yet you never saw advocates of it learn from that and adapt their tactics. They just came back to the same message of over and over again saying, well, this is the most efficient way of reducing emissions. And uh, they never really documented, well, you know, is the, uh, is the efficiency important? Are we talking about significant results? Um, so uh, there was a, a lot of arrogance, a lot of elitism in, in many of these proponents of the carbon tax. And they didn't connect well with the average person at all.
And you mentioned that too, the, the best way to reduce emissions, because I think that's an important one too. When, when people are opposed to the carbon tax, sometimes they're quickly painted as, in they don't, as if they don't care about the environment, which isn't always the case. Uh, but there, perhaps the argument being that there are better ways to go about doing it. Very much so. And, uh, you know, proponents are always saying, well, the carbon tax is the most efficient, lowest cost solution to this problem. That's not true, actually. Uh, You know, technological change probably is the uh, lowest cost solution. It it usually is for almost all of our problems. Uh, Switching from, you know, over time, we've switched from first coal to, you know, oil and to gas and then to renewables. And, you know, we did all those transitions without uh, carbon taxes. That reflected technological change. So perhaps, you know, the real role of government in all this should be supporting uh, new te- the adoption and uh, creation of new technologies rather than fiddling with the price system. But, you know, the problem is economists, of which I are one, so i got to admit that. I understand how the profession thinks. The profession economists have a very good model of how people respond to all well the prices. We don't have a good model of technology. So when people come to us and say, can you solve this problem for us? We reflexively tend to, to say, well, let's fiddle with relative prices and uh, because that's what we understand. But that reflects a limitation of economics. That's not a reason for – that doesn't mean that that is necessarily the best solution. It just basically reflects a limitation of, of uh, what we know. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We are out of time. But, Philip Cross, thank you so much for take, taking some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, This isn't the nicest topic, I suppose, because there are a lot of people out there who find rats to be a little bit off-putting, should we say. That said... There are a lot of them. And if you live anywhere in Metro Vancouver, you've probably seen them here and there. So how do we live with them? How do we understand better the role they play? Uh, There is some new research out of UBC that takes a look at that. And joining me on the line is Chelsea Hemsworth, Regional Director for the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative at UBC. Chelsea, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, so you were part of a team looking at uh, rats and rats as part of the ecosystem. What exactly were you looking at? Well, to provide a bit of context, we've been studying rats in the city of Vancouver for about 10 years now. And we were initially interested primarily in rat-related health threats. But it became pretty clear that the whole way that cities approach rats and manage rats left a lot to be desired. And that's not just Vancouver, that's really cities around the world. So our new area of focus is really understanding how cities can manage rats in a better way. And so what, we, what was it that was kind of le- less, not very desirable, or what did you find that cities were perhaps doing that they could improve on? Yeah, so it's a combination of three things. First is really a lack of leadership and strategic planning. So most of the time, cities will only become involved in rat issues in very specific circumstances. So specific property types or where it intersects with bylaws. And most people will recognize that for the majority of the urban space, residents are sort of left on their own. Now, the second big issue is a lack of investment in information. So we don't even know how many rats are out there, where they are, why they are in certain places, 
what's sort of causing rat infestations. And the combination of those has doomed us to what I've termed the ambulance approach. So wait until there's a problem. People are complaining. Everyone's super upset. Go in there, try and kill as many rats as possible, and then leave. And the problem with that is, you know, the rats repopulate at an alarming rate. So the infestation returns within weeks to months. But it does nothing to address the underlying cause of the problems. And I think if we go back in Vancouver itself, uh, I remember reading that it was Expo. And when the Expo lands were developed, all of those rats moved over or somehow made it over to the other side of False Creek. They were displaced and ended up in more uh, developed neighborhoods, which is when we really saw this uptick in rat sightings. Does that ring true? Absolutely. And you know what? I think you've identified one of the key issues of asking people to deal with rats themselves. It's because usually the root causes of these infestations are beyond an individual citizen's control. So people can only do so much on their individual property when exactly as you say, the rats are flooding in because of some nidus or some cause that's external to their sphere of control. And I mean, even walking around, just anecdotally, I see those black boxes everywhere in my neighborhood, which are rat traps and rat to to eliminate rats. Uh, Is that uh, something that I mean, that would be residents that have put them out to to deal with it. Is that an example of, of what you're talking about in that residents are kind of left to their own devices? Yeah, and it's a good point. I, I, we see those as well. And who knows who's put them out? It's sort of relics of, uh, you know, ineffective pest control uh, processes that have gone on over the years. And that's why we are advocating for a totally different approach. And we're actually working with the city of Vancouver to have what I would term this more ecosystem-based approach. Because they tend to be associated with filth and with garbage, but certainly that's not the only places we see rats. We might just see more of them in those areas. So how do we shift that from going from putting them in the places where putting traps and killing them in the places where we see them to to this approach that you're talking about? So the first step is actually to shift our perspective in rats. And that may seem really pie in the sky, but I'll I'll get you there in a moment. And, And that's Understanding that the city isn't this sterile place that's completely under our control, that it's an ecosystem and rats are wild animals and they share this ecosystem with us. And that doesn't mean that we should love them or invite them into our houses. And it it also doesn't mean that we should just leave them alone. What it means is having a more comprehensive approach. So it's first of all, recognizing that the city is an ecosystem and the system by its nature, is more than the sum of its parts. So that would call municipal officials to actually have a strategy that extends over the entire system. And in order to develop that strategy, they have to understand the system. So making these substantive investments in understanding not only rat populations and what causes them, but also how rats actually interact with humans and why that's disturbing. And that then suddenly puts all these new tools in our toolkit. So not only better ways to reduce and eliminate infestations, but also to understand where rats are causing the most friction to focus resources. And most people would agree, rats cause the most friction in our homes. We don't want to live with them. But ironically, that's the one area that cities often uh, exert the least amount of effort is rats in the home.
<laughs> do they play a positive role? Like you said, they're part of the ecosystem. They they have a role. Do they play a positive role in any in any way? You know what? I get asked this question so much, and it's it's tough to answer. Rats are amazing at exploiting us, and they have been for millennia. So they get a lot of positives from us, us not so much from them in that direct sense. So they don't um, necessarily increase the health of our urban environment. But I would argue that on on almost a philosophical sense that if we can learn to live with rats, it would help us to be better citizens of our urban environments and better citizens of the planet. Because it's really that recognition that we have to learn to live within this environment around us. Hmm. It's an interesting way of looking at it, because, because I guess the question being, if rats were eliminated off the face of the earth, would there be a domino effect that would be negative in that, you know, people might uh, not, might not like frogs, but frogs are very important and, and we can accept that. But if we if we eliminated rats, would we see would there be this this domino effect? The answer is I really don't know. Rats are a very odd species compared to all the other wild species because, honestly, rats don't live in the wild. So, you know, the quote-unquote wild in the forests or, you know, um, the jungles, they have adapted to live completely with us in cities in this kind of manufactured environment that has evolved over centuries and so we really don't know what they would look like without us or us without them and so I would have to say at this moment I don't know what it would look like but um, to my knowledge rats don't provide a tremendous amount of ecosystem services but I think the thing we have to focus on is having said that people are going to be like well why don't we get rid of them and i would say we've been trying to do that since the dawn of civilization and we can take a picture of a black hole in space but we're still in the same place with rats that we were almost in the time of the black plague so i think we've recognized that this goal of extirpation is just not going to happen and we need to figure out a better way and i guess like coyotes would eat rats do they have other predators or i mean it's not as though coyotes would starve if the rats were suddenly gone but are there other predators that that eat them and that they provide that service you know it's it's such an interesting question so uh, there are not really many other natural predators that rely on rats so yeah coyotes um, some meat-eating birds who are sort of at the fringes of these systems will definitely eat rats. People have advocated um, for a long time to use cats, saying like, well, let's use cats to get rid of rats. Let's use these, um, I guess, natural predators or domestic predators. And the answer is that, yes, they may eat some rats, but they hardly make a dent in the overall population. So... Um, Yes, the rats may provide a food source for some animals, but these animals don't really have an impact in the big picture of rat control. And is it a case of, again, when we're talking about homeowners, because I think that is that is the part where if you see them out and about, you see them in an alley or I, I see them, I see them like in the blackberry bushes when I'm walking my dog and that you kind of, we've grown to accept that. When you see it in your basement, it's a little bit different. Is it a case of, cleanliness and if we keep things clean and there's no attractants that kind of like the same with bears they won't come 
Yes, that is sort of the basic principle of understanding rats as a wild species is understanding what they are relying on to survive and removing it. But I would hesitate to making it a very simple equation, and that's simply because rats are so adaptable. So you'll hear, you know, times, oh, I've got rats and they're eating dog food, you know, my dog food, or I've, they're relying on this you know, garbage bin that's down the, the street from me, or maybe it's a, a river and green space that they've infested. So they're tremendously adaptable, and that's part of the importance of collecting information and understanding within a city what the resources that particular population of rats are using. And and so why is it is it because they're so adaptable that that there's so many of them and like you said we've been trying to get rid of them for for centuries and have have not been able to do it. So why why do why are rats so prolific say more so than squirrels? I think it is exactly because they are very they have the remarkable ability of looking at this the various resources that we could possibly provide them and exploiting them and also their amazing reproductive potential so you know having litters every month of you know 10 children that's going to allow them to rebound from uh, just attempts at trapping and poisoning and that's why it's important to actually remove those resources because then they're not going to have as many babies and have as many babies survive. And that's what's going to make the substantive gains at starting to decrease the populations. Because if you are, you know, just taking out 10 rats, well, that's going to be replaced in a week. So wow. it's not going to, to make a big difference. It's a fascinating research. Just quickly before I let you go, what would be the one takeaway? In what, what's the one thing we're doing wrong that we, we could fix? I would say the big takeaway is for our municipal leaders because people can only do so much within their own home. And I think the biggest takeaway is the need at this point in time, while the problem is increasing, to have municipalities step in and take leadership and develop a strategy that's scientifically sound and based on principles that make sense for rats. And I'm really happy to say that Vancouver has been an awesome partner for this project. And so we're hoping to do it here and be an example for other cities around the world. All right. Uh, We'll check in with you again at a later date, I'm sure. Uh, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. Well, if you live in the city of Vancouver, you could be in for a big property tax increase. The 2020 to 2024 budget outlook has been approved by Vancouver City Council. And one of the motions in that or one of the ideas in that is a property tax hike of potentially 10%. So let's bring in a Vancouver City Councillor. Rebecca Bly joins us on the line now uh, to talk a little bit more about this. Councillor, thank you so much for being here with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, what, are you, what can you say to taxpayers and homeowners in Vancouver when people are going to see this number and think 10% is a huge increase when it comes to property taxes? Oh, absolutely. It's a it's an outrageous number to consider um, is reasonable. And I think, you know, this is a budget outlook. And so what we're looking at is if we were to move ahead with every sort of new council direction that's been brought forward in a motion since our 
being elected about eight months ago, which are dozens and dozens and dozens of motions, we could be looking at a 10% hike. And so that's, that's where that number comes from. So we are in a situation now where we need to go back and make some really tough decisions because this is about trade-offs. This is about making sure that we are delivering um, and improving core services to our residents. And these council directions are on top of that. Keeping in mind, we've, we've yet to go through any sort of exercise where we're telling staff, you know, stop doing this from previous terms direction, previous council's direction, and, and, and start focusing our attention uh, in a different way towards these new initiatives. So it's just everything's been piled on, and it's time for us to really be, um, be uh, more strategic and also um, really, like I said, make some tough decisions about what's not going to be happening. Uh, do you find that there's, and you kind of touched on this, uh, that then and some of the leftover from the previous council, are staff being directed and uh, and taken down in, in, into areas that really aren't the jurisdiction of a civic council? Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. I think there is certainly times where. Um, Staff are being directed into areas where they do not have the direct tool or jurisdiction uh, under the Vancouver Charter to really be able to um, make a final decision, and we need to work in partnership with other levels of government. I do think that happens, though, at all levels of government, so it depends on what the topic is. Uh, one of the in the in the budget uh, the report that was uh, passed in the under the proposed budget priorities uh, third on that list it's a list of four is to increase focus on diversity and critical social issues. What does that mean? Well, increasing focus on diversity. So we have, um, as we know, a very diverse population in Vancouver. We have um, a a High, high numbers of um, refugees coming into our city that need support, um, education around that. So, uh, you know, increased focus on diversity, I think we could probably both agree that that's pretty broad. And I think what that's saying is not to stop to ensure that we're putting that kind of lens on the decisions that are made. In terms of our community, our community center programs and how we leverage that, what's happening in our parks, uh, the kind of outreach we can be doing. Um, there's also uh, under that priority uh, accelerate action on climate change and then it goes into some of the numbers uh, from 2020 to 2024 on uh, the millions uh, to be spent uh, five to six million in 2020 and that number every year uh, up to 2024 Um, does it go into what exactly that means I mean are we talking about writing more letters to oil companies or are we talking about that money those millions of dollars uh, being used to to shore up the waterfront for rising sea levels and to actually build infrastructure? Well, you bring up two good, uh, two good examples there. I mean, I personally voted against writing the letters to the, the oil companies, but I think that would be one of those things where we could spend time doing that, and it's not going to deliver something directly to us that's going to support us as we deal with climate change. Um, further to that, I, I believe we need partnership to transition and adapt over to... Um, different types of um, energy sources and, and even um, electrify our, our world. And we need partnerships with, with um, fossil fuel companies in order to make that happen. 
Um, so, so I voted against that personally. Um, so no, I don't think that that's the number under the 2020 to 2024 sort of long range, um, uh, budget outlook is, is about that. Um, although I do think that that would not be a good use of our staff time. However, I do, um, yeah, showing up our, uh, the, the, the water, the sea level rise, things that we can plan for in the next five to six years um, would be proven to us as a city to look at what it is that needs to be done and prioritizing that. Um, and, and I believe that that isn't outside of our jurisdiction. I think, you know, if, if you look at the uh, climate emergency motion that was passed unanimously by this council, and then the six big moves that came along with that, they're very much under what a city's jurisdiction would do. So around retrofitting buildings, um, uh, low, low carbon, uh, to low carbon emissions, um, what we can be doing to support um, active transportation, uh, car sharing. We've got more motions coming forward around making it easier for the for the car share industry uh, or car share um population who likes to go around the city that way, things that we can really know the decisions that make will affect the day-to-day lives of our residents, um, and it's a large number, and it's the largest number. So we have to look and see, is this where we're going to focus 100% of our attention? Under that list as well, talks about um, a watershed revival plan. That's likely something that we, we really need to um, take a look at and, and, and plan for, uh, Falls Creek, the uh, River Blue Ways was brought forward by another councillor, Councillor Weave. You know, that has a million-dollar price ticket on it. So are we going to get that done in 2020? Well, we may have to look at how to strategically um, push that back in order to not overburden our residents with, a, with an unreasonable tax hike. Because even previously, when the tax hike has been in the range of 4.9% or even lowered down to 4.5, that's still a big hike. That's that's a lot of people don't see their salaries climb anywhere near that. So now if we're telling people that it could be 6 or 7% or it could be as high as 10, I mean, I think the question from a lot of taxpayers would be uh, when we face spending difficulties in our own private budgets, we spend less. So is there any appetite on council to look at ways to spend less rather than just looking at how can we get more money from taxpayers? Well, I completely agree with that comment. Um, and it's one that I vocalized in council many times before. We are, we are stewards of the taxpayers, of taxpayers' money. You know, our job is to be responsible with it, to be um, conservative with it in terms of how it's spent. If you remember, we did not earn this money. <laughs> we don't earn taxpayers' money. It was a, we need to collect a certain portion in order to deliver core services and properly manage the city so that people can enjoy, um, you know, their day-to-day lives. That being said, in our civic um, satisfaction survey, you know, tax tax dollars spent was pretty low down on the list in terms of people's concerns. More were overall cost of living. So, you know, we know that tax increases can contribute significantly to cost of living, and we have to look at the broad picture as a city council and look at all the ways in which we can help make the city I don't love the word affordable because it's very subjective and it can be different for different people, but you know, generally speaking, to make the city more uh, affordable right across the board. 
But yes, I think we have to be very cautious. We have to be conservative when it comes to, um, you know, our fiscal responsibility to the residents of Vancouver. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you uh, taking some time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a topic that has been talked about on again, off again for several years. The idea of Hastings course, the race course, and how it is situated in Hastings Park and whether or not that's a good fit. Well, my next guest says it's not. And Rick Hurlbut ran for the Vancouver Park Board in 2018 with a promise that he would look at that and continue trying to remove the race course. Uh, He joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this issue. Uh, Rick Hurlbut, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, what is it that's brought this back? Is it that the lease is uh, running out, or why are we bringing this back, talking about this again? Actually, discovering that the lease was running out was strictly by accident. I was looking at the entire usage of Hastings Park, huge piece of land in East Vancouver, but only tiny bits of it are actually turned over to the park board for community use. So it was only digging through the history of the race course and everything else that I discovered this lease agreement was up in November of this year. And what are your concerns with having race, uh, the race course in Hastings Park? Well, horse racing in itself is controversial. We're seeing a lot of uh, reporting uh, happening in the U.S. about the abuse of racehorses, putting down racehorses. Uh, we've just in the last few days seen the third horse be put down at the Calgary Stampede. Um, and, you know, animals for entertainment is something that is leaving our culture. Um, the entire country of Canada has banned cetaceans in captivity, not just the Vancouver Aquarium. We're seeing uh, state after state in the U.S. ban dog racing because it's inhumane. But apart from that, um, you know, having the race course in Hastings Park is a historical accident. Um, It's been there seemingly forever, since 1892, when that part of Vancouver was wilderness. Nobody ever thought that that would be a neighborhood one day. And so nobody thought twice about, sure, let's put a race course in there. Um, Now we've got huge demands on our park system. Our population is growing. And the park board itself has identified that the east side of the city is sorely deficient in park space, not just now, but projected into the future as well. How are we going to find more park space when land costs as much as it does? It's not like there's huge tracts of land in East Vancouver just available for the park board to buy at cheap prices. That's never going to happen. So we need to look at the space we already have, like Hastings Park, and say, is this really the proper use for that space anymore? Wouldn't a race course be better off up the Fraser Valley somewhere where the grass is green, the land is cheap? So, but wouldn't or couldn't the same argument be made for the PE and for Playland and using that and having that in that location as well? I think that more people get benefit out of the PE being there. And the PE really only runs a, a couple of three weeks in late summer. The rest of the year, the, the space is actually available for the public to, to visit. So it's not like it's uh, shut off 12 months of the year for the public use. And the PNE is going to go through a redevelopment as money becomes available so that more green space is created, fewer hard surfaces are there. Uh, it's going to have a smaller footprint going forward. Uh, so you've talked about this before, and I know this was a big part of your campaign when you ran for Park Board. What kind of a response do you get from people? 
Well, it actually garnered quite a bit of applause when I made that statement at the Hastings Community Center uh, when they hosted a candidate debate for park board candidates. Uh, I think the words out of my mouth were, uh, Hastings Park is the most abused park in the park system, and that was you know on Twitter minutes after I said it. And people who live in that neighborhood understand that they're being shortchanged. And what about people that use Hastings, uh, the race course, and that enjoy it? And I mean, there there are different events that are held there every uh, weekend, especially in the summertime. What about those that support it? Well, supporting the race course would make sense in, in if it was in fact a viable business model, but it's not. Uh, race courses all over North America cannot keep their doors open on horse racing alone. Um, and as a result, at Hastings Race Course, there are now over 500 slot machines uh, to keep the doors open, to have the revenue stream. Um, and basically what we're seeing is we have a, a de facto gambling establishment in a city park. Um, I don't think people are very supportive of that idea. And so have you discussed this at all with the new park board or with the new council? Uh, I have not. Um, not in an official capacity. I've spoken to individual counselors one-on-one, and they're seeing the same issues. And so do you get the impression that something might be done or this issue might be revisited? I'm hoping, especially given that the lease is coming up in November. Um, the thing, of course, as everybody knows, there is a mountain of uh, obligation on the desks of counselors right now um, I, I don't see this as being a high priority as homelessness um, or the uh, ecological issues. So, you know, it's very early in this council's mandate. By the time we get to November, they'll only have been in office for a year. Um, it would be nice if they could handle it now when the lease is up, but I think they've got a lot on their desks right at the moment. No, I, I would agree definitely that it's not uh, it's not a, a top priority and it's not uh, something that we we hear a ton about uh, every day, certainly from people. Uh, is that one of your concerns, that it kind of flies under the radar? Uh, like you said, there are slot machines there. Those can be controversial, but it doesn't really seem to be uh, the focus of the public. Well, it's not just a matter of flying under the radar. It's also a matter of secrecy. Um, like I said, I had to do a lot of digging before I found that document. It was just it wasn't even uh, labeled Hastings Racecourse. It was, you know, had some code on it. So, um, and I also looked for the financial records for Hastings Racecourse. It's operated by Great Canadian Gaming. And they just fold all of their operations into a single annual report. So you can't pick out the numbers that actually pertain to the racecourse. So, it's not just a matter of flying under the radar. It's a, there's a great deal of secrecy. I don't think anybody at the race course or at City Hall is, wants to talk about it, at least certainly not the last administration. I'm hoping the new administration is going to see things differently. Uh, you'd brought up in the past as well uh, the fact that uh, the operator, the users of that land are exempt when it comes to, to the bylaws around noise, uh, lights and such, which they would have to be for uh, those events and uh, things like the p and Playland to continue. Uh, do you hear from residents that there are concerns about the fact that there is this piece of the, the east side of the city that gets that exemption? 
Well, there, there is that. Um, I don't know that the race course makes that much noise, but certainly concerts that happen in the park um, have an impact on the neighborhood. I think the biggest impact, um, certainly during the PNE, is parking. Um, that's that's a huge stress on that neighborhood. But you know, thankfully, it only happens for a few weeks. Right, and and much of that neighborhood, if not mo- all of it, is permit parking in front of the homes where where people might want to think that they could park for free for the PNE. It's uh, you can't actually do that. Well, what you can't do officially and what happens often are two very different things, aren't they? <laughs> That's true. Uh, so what do you do next in this, uh, the continuing with this, uh, trying to remove this from that part of the city? Well, it's a matter of opportunities coming along where you can have this conversation. I think what happened, uh, your producer picked up on a comment that I had made on somebody else's Twitter post about the Calgary Stampede, you know, isn't this tragic? We should do something about this. And I chimed in and said, yes, and Hastings Race Course too. So whenever there's an, somebody opens the door to dialogue, I hope I'll see, be there to, to make that kind of comment. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the program. Uh, Rick, uh, I know we'll talk to you about this again, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. 911.